Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest, I was going to say Empire spoiler special, but this is as pilot plus as you're going to get, <laughs> I guess. Yes! But, but living, masquerading under the Empire banner, this is our final Better Call Saul spoiler special. Now that Better Call Saul, and by extension Breaking Bad, has wrapped up its incredible run, uh, we've decided to come back together again to talk about it for one last time. And by we, I mean my two colleagues slash co-pilots of such lethal cunning. Boyd Hilton is here. Hello, Chris. Up the pilot massive. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you say when you get on a plane? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Do you remember planes? Do you remember remember going on trips? I love a plane. I love a trip. I am available to go on planes and trips. I I am not picky. Yeah. Not picky at all. Uh, anyway, uh, this is a man, next up is a man who wasn't on either of our previous two Better Call Saul spoiler specials. He was busy, I guess, catching up on Better Call Saul, James Dyer, but now you are, yeah. here you are. So I'm going to give you my best slip in, Jimmy. I'll be like, are you in trouble? Is the cost of living getting you down? Is two ninety nine a month proving too rich for your blood? Better call the <laughs> Pilot Plus podcast, which is only one ninety nine a month and has much more TV stuff. Hooray! There you go. Better, better call, call James. James. Uh, yes, no, I was. Better telephone Last James. Last summer, and uh, we talked about this a lot on Pilot TV, I was I was doing the podcast. I was lamenting the fact that I, I was behind on Better Call Saul. I hadn't watched it because I had got bored after the first season, never gone back to it. And I said on the podcast, I really want to get COVID because that will give me time to catch up on it. And no word of a lie, the next day, I tested positive for COVID and spent a week <laughs> watching Better Call Saul all day <laughs> every day until I caught up. So I was able to watch, I think, the last four episodes as they went out. So I caught up just in time. And thankfully now we can turn this into the proper sausage fest it deserves. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Beth Webb is unavailable uh, today. So I'm afraid you're going to get three great big sausages. Well, let's be honest. Three three chipolatas uh, (laughs) talking about Better Call Saul. But before you hear from us, basically I have brought us together as a very, very flimsy excuse to add on to the the interview you're about to hear. Because I, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable just putting up an interview, no matter how good it is or no matter how in-depth it is. Uh, you know, it just feels a bit flimsy to me. So this is a bit of added value to the interview you're about to hear, which is a great interview with Peter Gould, who is, of course, the co-creator and the showrunner of Better Call Saul and the man who wrote and directed the final episode and uh, I caught up with him uh, ooh, a couple of months ago now, just after the final episode had gone out. So he hadn't even really had time to adjust or really take in his feelings about how his life was now that Better Call Saul was finished. But we got into it. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, he is always a fascinating interview. So here we go. Before we get into it and answer your listener questions, here is a man who would be much better placed to answer those questions. Peter Gold. <laughs> Enjoy. Congratulations on on the finale. Uh, I believe the phrase is "you've stuck the landing." Uh, <laughs> wow, well, that's wonderful to hear. And and then some. Um, so, what, what's your? You've seen the reaction, the early reactions. Do you scan the reactions? Are you seeing what people are saying about this show? Uh, I try not to. I try not to get too too deep into the weeds. But uh, what I've seen has been positive, and the most positive thing for me was. Uh, watching the episode at Bob's house, uh, Bob did. Bob did. Bob and Ray did this wonderful thing 
uh, and Bob and Naomi let let a whole group of like thirty or forty people into their into their house, and we all uh, we all had, had sushi and some pizza and enjoyed hanging out with each other. And oh yeah, we watched the episode too, and that was that was that was pretty wonderful because most of us, I, boy, I know Bob and Ray hadn't seen it. And uh, obviously, Vince, Vince, and I, and some of the writers had seen it, but it, it was uh, it was really fun to see it in a group and see it fresh. Yeah, I, I, was Bob happy with the? Uh, because I know I listened to the I listened to the Better Call Saul Insider podcast religiously as well. <laughs> and uh, was Bob happy ultimately with the combination of of takes that you used? Because I know he wanted to go back and reshoot the his his end monologue, and you used I think bits was- from the first part as well. I think he was super. I mean, he, we never actually we didn't discuss that in particular, but he's been super happy with the episode. And you know, he uh, that was a that was a great moment for me. Was I, I gave it gave him the script in uh, we were in New Mexico and went over to his house, and he just loved it so much right away. He loved where we went with the character that it was it was very nice, and it, that that uh, that made that made the work uh that much more fun because he he just he just i think he really understood what we were after uh and and the great thing is i guess that they it, when you say it landed that means that everybody understood what we were after because it was a little bit i will say it was a little it was it's a scary ending i mean we're asking an awful lot from the audience it's not you know there's no there's no there's no deaths there's no explosions there's there's not an, a single bit of action Really, except for him climbing into, a, except for Bob climbing into a dumpster, uh, and so it, you know, I, I was a little bit, I was a little worried about it uh, because the way a lot of great shows end is with a with a giant big bang boom uh, sequence, and we just that wasn't right for this show, and I knew it wasn't right for this show. I think we all did, but yeah, I, I, I it's very hard to know how an audience is going to take something, but I. From what I'm seeing, people uh, received the episode the way we intended, which is which is just wonderful. Absolutely, and you have this this beautiful bittersweet. It's the it's the happiest unhappy ending I've seen in a long, long time, and <laughs> uh, and you, you just have this 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 wonderful way of reconnecting Kim and Jimmy, which I which which really moved me. I, I watched the episode again this morning, and I was tremendously moved once again. And I, I think it's it's commendable as to your your credit that. Jimmy didn't magic his way. I call him Jimmy still. I don't know about you, Peter, but uh, Jimmy didn't magic his way out of the situation. You know, even when he dons the armor of Saul Goodman, he decides to go back. He does the right thing. Uh, and that, I wonder if that was a, a concern, something you guys were talking about in a, in a writer's room as well, that there are no major Saul Goodman-esque legal fireworks at the end, that it's a man doing the yeah. right thing for the first time in his life. Sometimes the most surprising thing to do is the uh, simplest thing. Uh, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes the twist is that there's no twist. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, that, that, that came up earlier in the season two when Nacho died. Uh, the, the, that, that's a very interesting episode that Gordon Smith wrote and directed. And uh, basically, you know, Nacho's resigned himself to dying pretty early in the episode and it, our our story intuition as an audience says that there's going to be a big twist and he's not going to die and 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 in a weird way it was a uh, more of a surprise 
that he did. I mean, it also was true to the characters. Um, it's it's uh, it, this the end of the end. This this courtroom scene has something in common with that, except of course uh, we saw him as devilish. We saw uh, Saul or Jimmy or whatever you're going to call him. He is as devilish as he's ever been mm-hmm. in this in this finale episode. He you know he 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 looks Marie Schrader straight in the eye and says that well I'm the real victim here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, we have this we have this interesting parallel. There are these two widows. Uh, Kim has has her moment with Cheryl, her painful moment with Cheryl in episode twelve, uh, and then Jimmy has this moment with. Uh, with Marie, uh, played by the amazing Betsy Brandt, and uh, they go in opposite directions. Uh, whereas, you know, you know, Kim, Kim, I think is uh, she's so brave in that scene. She goes to this lady's house and she sits there and just withstands the firestorm uh, of and and is there is just witnesses what's happening with Cheryl uh, that she's caused. And Jimmy, on the other hand, is all about his own his own well being. At least in that, uh, at least in the, those early acts of the finale. So we we had a lot of work to do in that episode to take him from being a complete bastard to uh, back to back to his true self. I think, or at least where he started, or maybe a new guy. Maybe he's a new guy in the end, who's who's just a little bit more balanced and grounded than he ever was. There's so much to dig into because I want to talk about the the the, the final season uh, as a whole, and there's so much that you do in this season in terms of subverting audience expectations and going left when people think you're going right, and then when people think you're going to go left again, you go further left, and it's it's just it's wonderful. But I also want to dig in first into 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 how you end the show really because you you end the show with with. Jimmy doing what he does. He takes responsibility for the first time in his life, really even takes responsibility for Chuck, uh, really, for the first time in his life. How much of that was, in your mind, premeditated for him, or how much of it was a response to seeing Kim in the flesh? Uh, I think when he walked, well, to me, and some of this really is up to the to the audience. I hate to, I hate to, I hate to dot every I and cross every T, but, but <laughs> For me, and the way Bob and I worked on it, um, he walks into the courtroom knowing that he's going to take responsibility for everything that happened with Walter White. In fact, he's going to more or less say uh, that he's responsible for what happened in Breaking Bad. Uh, and in a weird way, in a weird way, he's right. He is, yeah. I mean, he's 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 right, and that's it's exciting to me. You know, it's it's not. Sometimes we talked about it being like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but you know those were two; those are two characters who ultimately did, at least as I recall, and my recall is not a hundred percent. That's for damn sure. Uh, they didn't have that much uh, of an effect. They didn't have no. that much agency in the play, which is, of course, the whole point of the the Tom Stoppard play. We had a very we had a more uh, we we had a less philosophical take, which is that sometimes the people who sit in offices wearing ties uh, and can be as responsible in their own way as the people who are on the street uh, shooting or, you know, making meth. Yeah. Uh, he, he really did. He really did have a lot of responsibility for that meth empire. Um, 
And so anyway, I'm sorry, I took I took I took the long way around to answer your very simple question. <laughs> uh, to me, he goes he goes in to take responsibility for what he did uh, having to do with Walter White, which is really what he's there for. That's that's what that's what he's in legal hot water for more. Mm-hmm. He's not really in hot water for what happened to um, Howard, because that's I mean, it's very hard to assign responsibility. Uh, and certainly he and Kim never intended uh, what happened to Howard to happen. Uh, but the, it was all more or less like a, a bad dream. But he is taking responsibility for everything that happened uh, after Kim left. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, as he walks in that courtroom, he's got this smirk as he's approaching because he knows he's going to put on a big show. Mm-hmm. He knows he's going to be in the spotlight. And he does everything that he's intending to do. He does everything. He does. He does speak to what he um, what he did in the drug world. But then he looks back at Kim and he knows it's not enough. Yeah. So then, strangely enough, his confession after that is all about things that aren't actually on the table in this courtroom. Mm. It's about Howard, which is which is too complicated, really, to prosecute. Uh, ultimately, it's about it's about Chuck which again, as, as Oakley says, isn't even a crime. But the, uh, the, the paradox here is some of the things he feels uh, the worst about weren't actually crimes. Mm-hmm. And that's been the, one of the paradoxes at the, at the heart of the show is that you have Chuck McGill, who a lot of our audience hates. I don't hate Chuck at all, but a lot of our audience feels that Chuck has done something terribly wrong. He, Chuck never violates the law. <laughs> even. When he when he takes a newspaper from the neighbor, he leaves he leaves money uh, to pay for it. So, but but he is but Jimmy does violate the law. So there's a lot of very um, we're very interested in those ideas. But I, that that's a very long winded answer to your to your brief question. I think he goes further because he sees Kim and Kim is unmoved because she sees even though he's confessing and even though he is ultimately slitting his own throat somehow he hasn't really progressed. Yeah. 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 Until right at the end, right at the end where it's yeah. just, there's just enough, uh, just enough to reconnect as well. And I, I know again, from listening to uh, Chris McCaleb's podcast and re- reading lots of interviews that you did after the, after the finale aired, you know, I know that it was around about season four where you decided that you were going to end it with, with Saul going to prison um, but when did you decide that the end was going to be that conversation between Jimmy and Kim? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think that was all. I don't know if decide is kind of a funny word. We had an image that we thought might work uh, in season four. We thought, oh, well, maybe maybe this is where we're heading. Uh, but we don't. I don't think anything gets decided for sure until uh, we until it's carded with a sharpie on a three by five card and put up. Put up on put up on one of our uh, cork boards. Um, the uh, the the conversation between Jimmy and Kim that was I think that came as we were breaking the episode. Um, we really felt that there was it was it so important for the two of them to have a scene together again. Uh, they they hadn't been in the same room uh, chronologically. They haven't been in the same room for years, mm-hmm. and we only saw them. We saw them only in the previous episode. We saw their that nasty goodbye scene where Saul says, have a good life, Kim. Uh, so we felt, we felt that 
there was uh, an important moment of reconciliation that needed to happen. Uh, in the original, the way we originally broke the episode, that happened immediately after the courtroom scene, before he even went off to prison. And the more I worked on the on the script, and the more um, I looked at it, I felt that the emotional heart of it was the scene between Jimmy and Kim. And so that should come last. And there were there were a lot of reasons why I flipped around some of the some of the order of the order of events there. Uh, but but uh, it was uh, fortunately the, the other folks who worked on the show agreed with me. But it, it was uh, that was it was a. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a challenge, but that was that was, I think, happened during it w- w- certainly happened during the as we broke the last few episodes. Mm-hmm. The big moment for me this season, there were two giant moments in the writer's room that where I felt like the, uh, the sun, the clouds parted and the sun shone into the, into our little writer's room. One was when we realized that Kim was going to, uh, have a scene with Mike and Mike would tell her that, that, uh, Lala was still alive and that she, and she wouldn't tell Jimmy. That was, that was huge for us. And, And that, that really made a big, big, big difference. And the other idea was, that Jimmy would tell her, uh, as he does in episode, sort of in episode <laughs> eleven and twelve, he tells her he tells her, um, you you can turn yourself in, and that she would she would go and do the right thing, and that he would find out about that. I, but that was like that was for me. Those were the big, the two big twists in the season, more than anything having to do with uh, any of the gunplay. <laughs> Once yeah. we had those two things. I, I felt okay. We're we're on we're on we're on our way. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the gunplay stops after episode eight, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. You know, the that's the version of expectation. There's a line from Mike in episode two of this season where he says, "Whatever happens next, it's not going to go down the way you think it is." And I just can't help but feel that he's speaking for you in that moment. That you, as as <laughs> you know, as the as the showrunner on the show, are are basically going. <laughs> Prepare yourself, audience. You think there's going to be loads of violence. You think we're going to spend a lot of time in the Better Call Saul timeline. We're not. We're not doing any of that. Nacho's going to die early. Howard's going to die early. Lalo's going to die early. You're going to get five minutes of Saul Goodman at the peak of his powers. And then you're going to get four episodes of Gene in black and white. Glorious black and white. Uh, am I right about that, Peter? Are you, <laughs> or was that just a line? I, I don't know if that was intended the way you're taking it but i'll i'll accept that because <laughs> you know it's it's totally i don't remember thinking thinking that uh but but i i'll buy it sure <laughs> but was that was that part of your thinking going into this because as i say this final season pretty much takes the rule book and rips it up for how final seasons are meant to go uh yes Chris, it 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 um, we made some very unusual dramatic choices, uh, and, and things that were very different from the way uh, that we've done them before. Uh, but it was all driven by what we thought we felt the show was really about, and what the focus of the show should be. Uh, I mean, I think in the end, uh, this is a show about uh, a man's soul. Uh, and you know whether whether he's whether he's he's got a soul 
and, and the and the other characters are very very important. Uh, and certainly Kim and Mike and Gus and Nacho and Howard are extremely extremely important characters. But it felt to us like uh, the show needed to be asking the right questions. And this is also Jimmy's a character who's not he's not he doesn't perform he doesn't you get violent uh yeah. really uh he's you know we've the closest to jimmy uh truly being violent was the uh the scene uh, i forget it was i think season four where they hang he hangs the those punks upside down and threatens them but that's really it's just a show yeah uh so he's he's not a vi- so it, it, for us to end end the show in a hailstorm of violence uh like the one that we had at the end of breaking bad mm-hmm. felt inappropriate I, and to be honest with you we never even considered it not even for a second uh, i think what, what we really and and i i will say that all my fears and think thoughts about oh this is this is really different from what we've done before or this is an unusual choice those all come after we make the choices because our our 90% of the time uh, we're thinking about what would the characters do? What's legitimate? What what is the next move for the, this character or that character? What what is left to be said about this character? What are we? What what is a note that we haven't hit with this person before? That's those are the kind of thoughts that we're pursuing more than oh this is then maybe after we've made the choice sometimes we go oh they're not going to expect this ha 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 but that's not that's <laughs> never the that's never the reason. That's never the reason for yeah. doing it. The, and I think that's why hopefully it feels cohesive because we're not purposely playing playing the audience. Uh, sometimes we will we will think about the audience in terms of what order we reveal information mm-hmm. or how long it takes for uh, the you know for for us to explain what's going on. I mean, probably the biggest example of that is we we holding out on what the plan was against Howard for uh what was it seven almost seven episodes it takes they come up with a plan in episode one that we don't hear uh and obviously if we had heard it uh the rest of it would have played very differently yeah uh but the truth the truth is uh, we also have a i'm sorry chris i'm going to keep going up up uh discursive rabbit holes we have a a guideline which is if, if a scheme works you don't really have to explain it you yep. only have to explain it if, if major things are going wrong. And the, the example I always think of is uh, Back to the Future. <laughs> so, yeah. Although yeah. although we've never had we've never had anybody build a model of of a of a street, which which I, I'm kind of sad about. <laughs> Again, a film about a time machine. <laughs> That's right. You're right. <laughs> Going back, and uh, what would you do if you had a second chance? Uh, <laughs> that'd be that'd be interesting. Jimmy and the DeLorean would be very interesting. But I, oh yeah, there's so much within that that I, that I wanted to talk about, and the fact that effectively you wrap up the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul era portion of the show by episode nine you give gus this wonderful moment of connection with another human being you show us the path that he could possibly have taken and then mm-hmm. you, you he snatches away from himself you have that moment with mike with Anacho's father it's beautiful and you're giving at the time we didn't know that this was the last time we would see sean carlo we didn't know it was the last time we would 
probably the, you know pretty much the last time we'd see Mike. Uh, we wouldn't see Kim for a couple of episodes as well. That's a really bold decision. And again, it's probably something you weren't really necessarily thinking about in those terms, but it does also seem like it's a very, very clear decision for you guys to to stop that show, episode nine, and then dedicate the other, the last four episodes to to Gene World. Oh yeah. We had we also had a um we had a theory about how the show was gonna work. At one time we talked called it dancing through the raindrops. Mm-hmm. We thought at a certain point uh we'd be following parallel stories in different times so that you'd you'd see a little bit of Saul and then you'd see a little bit of Gene and then maybe a little Jimmy too. And then those things would be intercut. And we we uh that was an idea I, I always loved and I was very I was very interested in. But as as it worked out, as it worked out, um we really only did we did it for one episode, which was episode eleven, yeah. which parallels, you know, uh 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 Saul's first interactions with uh, with um Walt and Jesse and then his his uh his, his making the same kinds of mistakes again except on a smaller scale and more pathetically in Omaha yeah, yeah uh yeah it's you're right they were there's there those are uh, bold cho- we I I do think though that we we felt very strongly that once we had revealed that the cabbie had recognized Gene and when Gene says, you know, I'm going to handle it myself, uh, we wanted to see how he was going to handle this. How is he going to how is he going to deal with this problem? And that felt that felt very significant to us. It felt important for us to uh, to, to wrap up Gene's story. And uh, yeah, it's just it's you know, it's wh- where where is this guy going to end up? And that was, you know, for a long time, we had no idea. <laughs> and so, so you, you uh, presumably at one point you talked about following Gene's story in cold opens because that was traditionally the way you opened each season. Yes, yeah, it was. It, it, yes, each season we'd start off with uh, with the Gene sequence. The first couple were more tone poems about this guy's situation, mm-hmm. and then it started to morph into a, uh, a a little bit of a paranoid suspense thriller. Uh, yeah. So, and we, as we laid out this season, we had 13 episodes and we just thought, well, you know, let's, let's save some time. Let's make sure that we can, uh, address Gene, but also that we can use, use the Gene episodes to also say whatever needs to be said about the, the, uh, Breaking Bad era. And that, that we thought, we thought that was a, a pretty, a pretty, uh, neat way to do it. And, and also, it would keep us focused on um, keep us focused on Bob. It's it's it, on, on Gene's character, Jimmy, Jimmy's character. It's a it's an interesting thing because when you have a story you know, that goes on for sixty episodes, we have you know sixty two episodes of Breaking Bad, sixty three episodes of Better Call Saul. You have a lot of characters and incidents, and in a weird way, I think it would be easy to fall into the the fall into the trap of spending the last couple of episodes trying to wrap every single character up and put a bow on them yeah put a bow on put a bow on each character so that the last you know the last two episodes are just you know wrapping up all the characters i i think that that's i that's a that's a tricky thing uh because it you just start it, 
everything is kind of the same. Everything, every scene is a concluding scene. And uh, so I, I, I like the solution that we came up with, which was that, uh, we, you know, we would conclude, you know, we have Nacho's conclusion and, and because you could, you know, these things, although they, they take place sequentially, you could potentially, uh, you know, re-edit it so that, that things happened, uh, you know, for the viewer simultaneously. Uh, mm. I, I like I like the way we did it, and you know it's like a piece of music. You want you want rise rises and falls. You want to you want to go. You want to have dynamics, mm-hmm. uh, and that that was that was our that was our attempt. Traditionally, when when a show comes to an end like this, and you have you have a show like this in which people can die, major characters can die. Traditionally, those major deaths tend to happen either in the penultimate episode or the anti-penultimate episode. You know, you know, you know, Hank goes out in you know pretty much the end of Ozymandias and the beginning right. of the penultimate episode as well of Breaking Bad, and that's not what you do here at all. And so it it, it was it was it was a wonderful experience. I didn't know where the show was going to go on a week on a weekly basis. And that that was tremendous. And I think the greatest example of that, uh, and I really want to pick your brains on, on on this, is the 2001 jump cut that you do. I know you've talked about this uh, in the past, but that cut from uh, Kim leaving Jimmy in episode nine to bam, a few years later, and he saw suddenly Saul Goodman. And that's tremendous because I imagine a lot of people were expecting at least two episodes with Saul Goodman at the peak of his powers, and you don't give them that. Uh, can you talk about that 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 decision? Sure, sure. Well, we, yeah, I mean, you know, we started the series with a question. We sometimes figuring out what the questions are is is the most important thing, at least for me. Um, and the question in this case was, what problem does becoming Saul Goodman solve? Mm-hmm. So, in other words, we know this guy. First time you meet him. He says, my real name is McGill. Uh, you know, I I just do anyway, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and then he, um, why? Why did he do it? Was And when we started out, we thought, oh, it's it's a business reason. You know, we thought it, this is, oh, it's marketing. That's what it is. He's, it's, it's all marketing. Uh, but he seems to be Saul Goodman 24-7 in, in, uh, in Breaking Bad, and why would you, if you know, if you're, you know, if you if you're Ronald McDonald and you work at McDonald's, you don't you don't wear the the wig when you're at home watching TV. <laughs> uh, so, so you know, we started thinking about really what was going on with this. And you know, obviously, it took us many episodes to understand and, and a lot of time and thinking. But we realized that it was the the loss of Chuck and ultimately Kim, and what happens with Kim that turns him into Saul Goodman, and that. Episode nine was our attempt to formulate that in dramatic terms and to make just make that as clear as possible uh, and uh, as clear and dramatic as possible. And that was our idea to go from this, you know, this painful scene of Kim leaving Jimmy, not still loving him though, which is which is I think what gives it an extra bit of pain mm. uh, going straight from that to full Saul, because I think at that point you have all the pieces uh, and it's, I, you know, we have a saying that we quote, I think it's from Billy Wilder. He may have said this. I hope he did. 
It says, if you give the audience two and two and let them make four, they'll love you forever. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we're reaching the Billy Wilder heights, but the idea is that you can put it together, that we're giving you, we're giving you the Lego pieces to snap together. And in that moment, when you put it together, there's a little, hopefully in my, the perfect world, there's a little dramatic thrill. Uh, and, And that, that was, that was our attempt there. Now, whether, and we did know, I mean, look, we, this is one thing I knew and I said it for a full year. People are going to assume the next episode starts with Saul in his crazy office and Walter White walking in. Yeah. That's, that's, of course, that's what's going to happen next. And then we'll go through Breaking Bad. And we thought, well, let's, let's not. Sometimes the best showmanship, sometimes the best showmanship is, is to not give you the thing that you feel is coming next, is to go in a different direction. And that was why, you know, episode 10, we're in, it's the only episode that's all black and white. There's not there's not a single bit of color in it, and it's it's all Omaha. There's no flashbacks, flash forwards, flash to the sides. It is it is all about his Omaha world, and I loved it. I I, I that's uh I, I did find out I heard that 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 episode was controversial, uh, <laughs> but but I, I I feel like maybe it was controversial. Maybe it's like you know you're expecting you know you eat a chicken sandwich for lunch every day. And then one day uh, you bite into what you think is going to be your chicken sandwich and it's the one you're used to and you like it, but this time it's filet mignon. And uh, <laughs> you might say, ah, where's my chicken sandwich? But you know what? Maybe, maybe you should have filet mignon once in a while. So <laughs> that's, that's my, that's my, that's my, that was my feeling about the reaction to uh, 10, which I love. Of course, I'm also a huge fan of uh the fly episode of breaking bad yeah. i think is one of the most incredible pieces of filmmaking i've ever seen in my life um and it just an incredible so people i know people don't that's not everybody loves that the way i do but you know it's it's it, if you do anything that has a point of view mm-hmm. uh some people are gonna some people are gonna dig it and some people won't Absolutely. Well, listen, I think people, if people, if people somehow don't like that fly episode, they should go back and watch it now, knowing that Howard and Lalo That's are true. buried underneath the, the super lab. And that, who knows? That's that might, right. that might just change things for them. But, uh, but I, 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 if I can posit a theory, a little theory, because I know that you guys, when you, when you started breaking season one, you thought that Jimmy was going to be sold by the end of season one. And I imagine that that was something that you kept on thinking throughout the process of making the show that, okay, now he's going to be Saul Goodman. Now he's going to be Saul Goodman. Now he's going to be Saul Goodman. (laughs) And in a way, we never really get to see, we never get to wallow in the Saul Goodman-ness. And I wonder, from my point of view, I wonder if that's because you didn't want to, because you loved Jimmy so much. Uh, For me, it was always going to be such a tragedy when Jimmy became Saul that I almost didn't want to see it. And I'm glad we didn't mm. <laughs> in a way. Was that from your point of view? Was it, was that something that was maybe eating away at you as well? I, I don't know if I thought of it the way you're thinking of it, Chris. Uh, I, I felt I, the question is always, what can we do that we haven't done already? Mm. In other words, there's a version there. And, and we thought we were going to get to this version of the show where, which was going to be a uh, more or less a procedural <laughs> That there could be a criminal procedural of Saul Goodman uh, doing, you know, aiding and abetting crimes. You know, we used to say uh, he's going to be the Jerry Maguire criminals. He's going to put together, he's going to put together 
you know, we always saw he's going to put together this gang to rob, you know, to rob, you know, some fancy warehouse and then something will go wrong and he'll have to get involved personally. Well, actually, now that I'm pitching, it sounds good. Uh, <laughs> but, but I have to say, I think we saw so much of that in Breaking Bad. Then yeah. you know, is isn't that isn't that isn't that is it enough? Maybe it is, and but it's what we chose not to do. We 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 really focused so much on what was going on in the guy's heart uh, that I it just felt like it would be weirdly enough. It felt like it would be treading water to just have him uh, do a lot of lot of Saul Goodman. Uh, but like you, I have to say, when. Um, in episode nine, when he when you see him as Saul Goodman living in that insane house, uh, offering offering a breakfast bar to uh, his companion for the night, uh, you know the way the way Bob drives while he's listening to his own radio ad, and he looks around like he looks around like yeah, that's me. Look at me, Albuquerque. And he does these little these duck lips. I, I loved every moment of that, and you know what, uh, you know. I, Maybe maybe we could have seen more. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I honestly I think it's it was the right way to go because uh, it's it's one of those things. If you had told me whenever the show began that uh, when Saul Goodman finally appeared, I would feel a pang of sadness at at, at, at saying goodbye to Jimmy. I don't think I would have believed you. Quite frankly, I'd have been I'd have been punching the air in triumph. Yeah, Saul Goodman. This is the title character. This is why we're here. And then when he shows up, it's so grubby and cheap and sad, and uh, because of everything that's just come before with with Kim, um, that I think it's 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 wonderful that you then do what you do and, and move straight into Gene Gene World. It's not a moment of triumph, is is what I'm saying. No, no, it's not. You're you're absolutely right. You you see why he's why he is the guy why he's put on this mask and he's the mask becomes the man, you know, he he's trying, he's trying to flatten himself out and be a cartoon character. And he, he's come damn close. I just want to ask about, yeah, I know you've spoken about this in the past about being locked in, in this show by things that happened in breaking bad, because you, you no idea that there was going to be a better call Saul spinoff and, you know, Lalo, Lalo is, whole existence even his name is something that was basically just a throwaway you know line that you were writing when you were writing that that better call Saul episode of breaking bad but one um sometimes you could you do get painted at the corners and it's always been really fun seeing how you guys paint yourselves back out again the black and white thing is really interesting to me as well because when you came up with the idea back in season one that gene was going to be a black and white you, I don't know whether you knew there were going to be entire episodes set in Gene World and set in that Gene timeline. Uh, and when you got to them for this this season, you you stay in black and white. The final shot of this show is in black and white. And did that ever give you a moment of pause? Like maybe we should make this in color? Or absolutely, absolutely, Chris. Uh, no, I think when we started, we just we thought the uh, the black and white in the uh, the teaser. Uh, of the pilot it was it, it was black and white really just to mark it as a different time period uh and it was we thought it was an interesting stylistic idea uh but yeah we we had one of the things that we talked about was maybe when we get to uh the gene era maybe we start in black and white and then the color bleeds in and now we're in color and uh and and that's that's letting the that that would communicate to the audience that now it's it's pres- it's in the present it's no longer uh, the ghost of christmas future <laughs> but they um 
when we when we actually thought about what that would mean and how that would feel, uh, it, it you know, in the Wizard of Oz, when things get to be color, it's because they're they're more dimensional, they're heightened, they're they're exciting in a certain way, and and that felt wrong for Gene. I mean, what would the moment have been that he should be in color? And also, you know, we really liked the black and white. And I have to say, yeah. I was expecting uh, pushback from, you know, our partners at AMC and Sony. I thought for sure that they would say, well, no, no, come on, you guys, you can't, you can't, can't do this. People have color televisions. They want to use, they want to use the color. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, we've, you know, I, I've seen that in other circumstances where, you know, you, the filmmakers want to do something a little present things a little differently and uh you know you're just told you can't do it uh that's not it's not acceptable they did not we never got any pushback at all from them uh and i i think it's a um you know and that's wonderful and it, it's it shows how much faith they had in us they were certainly giving us enough rope to hang ourselves uh so yeah I mean, it was it was just felt right and you know we're all it's, it's easy to see from the show we're all movie buffs so it's it's a way to use a different set of tools, a different set of visual tools that we thought would be fun and interesting. Uh, having said that, I love color. Uh, I think, you know, color is, is, you know, an incredibly expressive medium. And in fact, you can really, you can make color feel like black and white without taking all the color out. It's a matter of art direction and, and, and color timing and all those things. Mm. Uh, but it, this felt, it felt right. And it also, because we knew that after episode 10, we were going to be intercutting eras. It felt like, well, you know, the, interestingly enough, and I think this does work, the black and white, because you put it next to color, the black and white feels more black and white and the color feels more colorful because they're next to each other. It kind of inten it intensifies things. The contrast does. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy, though, but you know, like everything else, Chris, you you may see there's a pattern here. Uh, everything we make these decisions and then I immediately I'm worried that people aren't going to get it or like it. Uh, so that's <laughs> it's, but you know, all I can say is for the most part, I'm able to overcome my worry and move forward. Absolutely. But the, the restraint, Peter, is admirable uh, as well because, you know, uh, you don't show Jimmy walks into that, that courtroom as Saul wearing a, a Saul suit and you don't show it in all its glorious technicolor hideousness, I'm guessing. I've, I've, seen, a, I've seen a picture of Bob in color wearing that suit and that, that thing would have popped. Uh, but it's great that you, you don't do that. The only time we see color in the black and white era is when Jimmy and Kim share a cigarette. Uh, and can you talk about about that? And 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 we we've talked about ending it on on the two of them, but yeah. that's a that's a big moment. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was something that came up in the writing. Previously, we used black and white uh, color in the black and white scenes only for his Saul Goodman ads. Yes, and I guess the feeling was the color, you know, is is about emotional intensity and about. Uh, you know, collision of eras. It felt, it felt, it just felt right. I, I don't know if I can explain it all, but then the, uh, this scene, uh, I think this might've come up in the writing, uh, the idea of having the cigarette and the, um, the, the, the flame, it might've, and, and I, it was an idea that I liked and I was interested in, but I was a little worried about it, to be honest, Chris, this is, you know, there's a pattern here. I'm always worried. 
I, I was worried that it was going to be your, your eye would go to the, um, the thing that's in color instead of instead of being in the scene with Jimmy and Kim and the wonderful performances that Bob and Ray had. So right up until the end, I, we were we were playing with it. Uh, the first time I saw it, there was a rough version that um, one of our editors, Joey Reinish, mocked up. And it was so it was the, the color was so intense that I felt like, no, because we shouldn't do this because you're just looking at this technical effect instead of instead of living with the characters uh and it's already a little bit stylized because of the wonderful work that marshall mm. adams did the director of photography it said do we want to add another element to stylization uh but but you know cooler heads prevailed and people kept saying you know i you know when we saw it without they they missed it so we we ended up being very uh careful in how much color to put in and how subtle to make it to the point where I, I was expecting that if people have their television sets adjusted, uh, if they're not adjusted quite right, they might not even see it. They might not notice it. And I'd rather have them not notice it than have, than have it kind of land too hard. So it was, it was a real balancing act uh, that, yeah. that, uh, that Diane Mercer and I had to do uh, our post producer. And I did with, Keith, and, and hopefully we can get you Keith's last name. I'm forgetting it right now. Of Keith course. is our, our color, our colorist. We spent we spent a couple of hours in there and uh, just trying different versions uh, and seeing how much, how little we could get away with and have it feel right. So that that's a lot about the color <laughs> in one scene, but that's you know it's in, you have to take infinite pains with these things because you're going to live with them forever. Um, the the cigarettes that that for me symbolizes and suggests so much, and I know that you and Vince have said that 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 as far as you're concerned, this is it for this for this world for the Better Call Saul Breaking Bad world. Uh, who knows? Never say never. Uh, but for you, this this show, or for me rather, this show became a love story, and I don't think you intended it to be a love story uh, when you started off. So for you, does this cigarettes? suggest possible avenues of happiness in the in the in the future for for kim and jimmy or is this do you do you you know do you think for example she might go and continue to visit him or is this a one and done as far as she's concerned my my perfect world is that the ending has enough is specific enough that you feel that the show's over and it and it ended and you feel something and an emotion and, and and you have perspective on what happened and it feels conclusive, but that it's open enough that in a perfect world you keep writing the characters in your head as as a, as as you watch as you watch it, uh, and that's that's so you're asking me a question which I think is exactly the question that I would hope I would hope the audience uh, the viewer thinks about these characters later I, I i would hope that they don't immediately go on to another tv show and become obsessed with that i, I would hope that they, somehow these people these people stay with you a little bit even as you get obsessed with the next tv show uh, or the other characters uh, to, to me the, the true immortality for a writer is to create characters who live in the minds of the audience uh you know and then you know you think about you know who's 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 more immortal than uh, 
than Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, it's 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 a, it's, it's a uh, to create bigger than life characters who who become touchstones in people's lives. Having said that, yeah, I mean, I have my own story that I thought about for the two of them. And uh, I think Ray and Bob both have have the two, and I'm sure Vince does as well. Uh, you know, and I'm, I guess at heart, uh, a little bit romantic because I think that they, I think for me, what that ending says is that there's a connection between these two that's not going to go away. In fact, it says that in the script. Uh, and if that's true, if there is a connection that's not going to go away, then I don't think he's done with her. I don't think she's done with him. I don't know that they will ever be a romantic couple again. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, anybody who's been in a uh, intense romantic relationship with someone, you know, you know, that changes you and, you know, it, it never it never leaves you entirely. Uh, no matter what happens afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, I, th I don't think they're done with each other. Uh, is he actually going to do have to do 85 years? Well, most nonviolent criminals don't end up doing their entire sentence. Mm. Uh, so, well, you know, we'd have, you know, I think there, I think there may be other chapters, but I, I think that the, I don't think he'll ever be in his heart. I don't think he'll ever be Saul Goodman again. And I don't think him, is going to be uh, scamming again. I think she, I think she's gotten that out of her system once and for all. So I think they're they're both they're the the versions of themselves who we saw in the previous 60, 62 episodes. I think they have they've reached a new chapter in their lives. Both of them. Mm, absolutely, I think Victor and Giselle are no more for sure. But uh, the the last line of the show. I just wanted to ask about the last line of the show, but also I wanted to ask about the last shot of the show because the last shot is. Jimmy behind bars from Kim's point of view the camera moves ever so slowly and he fades out of out of view behind behind a wall and it strikes me that that's one of the few times we've seen Jimmy devoid of any bullshit of any bluster that that's that's mm -hmm. him and he may not even think of himself as Jimmy I know Bob said that he thinks of himself as James Morgan McGill in that moment yeah. um but can you talk about ending on on that shot the last line of the show is 86 years but with good behavior who knows but that, yeah, that, which is great. But that line, that last last shot is tremendous. Oh well, thank you. Uh, I, I just, I think I was feeling that uh, I wanted to have the last shot be about both of them, but about from Kim's point of view. And, and you know, Kim still has, you know, she has an open world ahead of her. Uh, and I think she's, I think, I think, you know, she's already started going back to the law. And uh, I think she's, you know, you can see in the way she holds herself in, in those last couple of scenes that she's, she's no longer uh, scared to make a decision. You know, I think she's, she's taken herself out of the game in life uh, when she moved to Florida, not because she's in Florida, not because she's doing uh, a regular job. Those are all perfectly reasonable things to do. And a lot of us do them. But she's she's not making any choices, and she's she's holding uh, herself in, and she it's because she doesn't want to do any more harm. But the problem is, by not doing any more harm, she's not doing any good either. She's just existing, and I think that in those last two episodes, 
she goes from just existing to being somebody who's going to take it. She's now someone who's going to take an active role in the world. And mm-hmm. I, I think she's going to do great things. And I don't think she's ever going to forget Jimmy. Uh, I, th- I think that, you know, I think that's what that says to me when she looks back at it and he disappears. But uh, Chris, I think what, what I hoping to do is to create a little moment that has enough ambiguity that um it opens things up rather than closes them down if that makes any sense yeah absolutely it it really does it really does and uh just real quick peter um you know we're talking about a show that began because a character you created uh for season two of breaking bad grew out of all proportion you you had no idea where saul was going to go with that in mind though is kim the greatest surprise of your writing career oh uh yeah i think so i'm yes absolutely well there's it's a it's a time i have a writing career (laughs) full of surprises full of surprises yeah the whole show is a surprise to me but yes i mean kim um and i will say just to just to add as just as an asterisk on what you just said yeah i did i did write the first episode that had Saul goodman in it but everything that we did on Breaking Bad and everything we do on this show is the product of a a, a right of collaboration. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm trying to take credit for everybody's work because it was it was there's a magic when people work together well. And you know we like to think about uh, solo creators going up to the mountaintop and grabbing lightning and then and then and then throwing it into our eyeballs. But the, I think. In, my experience is that the greatest creations happen in collaboration. Uh, and that certainly happens with the writers and, and, and the actors and the directors and, and everyone on, on the show. So I just want to, I want to add that uh, because, you know, I don't even think I came up with the name Saul Goodman. I think, I think Vince came in with the idea of a character named Saul Good. And then another writer said Saul Good man. And so, yeah, I do think Kim Wexler was the great support. Well, the great surprise to me was Kim. Absolutely, that, and I think it's a, it's a, it's it's a wonderful. She's a wonderful surprise, and Ray Seahorn, um, Ray Seahorn, just gave a performance that told us so much about who she was, uh, and you know we we just enjoyed talking about her so much. And it's interesting; she's an interesting character because often. Uh, her most difficult choices came when she had, when something good happened, you know, it was, there were those moments I, I, in the writer's room, it's for most characters, you're thinking, well, you know, what's the next bad thing that can happen to this character that's going to cause a challenge. But with Kim, it was interesting. Her, her uh, burgeoning legal career, her climb in the, in the, the law world actually became, one of her greatest difficulties uh and that's it's a very it's, it's, uh, drama is fascinating i mean there's just that you know you you think you know how it's going to work but you never do and uh i think maybe that's the, the secret is to be open enough to those those surprises but and kim wexler you're right number one surprise <laughs> number one surprise and then just real quick i want i wanted to ask about um something that Vince said in the Better Call Saul Insider mailbag show you guys did a few few weeks ago, where he was asked about 
the show's this and Breaking Bad moral stance vis-a-vis endings. And it's interesting to me that, you know, Walter ultimately pays for his crimes. Jesse is put through hell, gets away, you know, he gets away, but he's still put through hell uh, for his crimes. And ultimately, of course, Saul ends up in prison. Was that at any point the moral imperative or that side of things? Was that ever a consideration for you guys when you were bringing this, bringing this, this behemoth into land? It doesn't. Uh, it, it, yeah, I think morality. We talk about morality a lot in the writers' room. Uh, you know, we think about what do these characters deserve. But you know, of course, sometimes you get the most dramatic energy from injustice, from for the audience understanding that something is not correct, that there's undeserved suffering from uh, a character is experiencing. And I think, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think that most, even when, even when a story is not ostensibly about morality, I think it, it, it often has that dimension. Uh, and, and I think we're, we can't help but watch, watch things that way. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 but I think that's the, I, do, yeah, we think a lot about what the characters deserve. Uh, (laughs) we do we do we think think a lot about what the characters deserve in the end but that doesn't mean that they should get what they deserve i mean i think walter white probably deserved to be tried in a court of law and have have his crimes clarified to the world uh but that that's not what he got he got something else he got he got more or less what he wanted um, Jesse, you know, certainly didn't deserve to be, to be, uh, locked up and forced to cook meth by a bunch of Nazis, mm-hmm. just kept in a pit, but he did deserve some freedom. And, and I think that's what Vince gave him with, um, with El Camino. And I think the great thing for Saul, I think the going to prison was the one thing that he was most terrified of. And, and yet, that's he makes his own choice uh, to go. So, yeah, I mean, it, there's there's yes, there's a moral dimension. And we often talk about what should the character do uh, and what should the character do for their own morally? What should they do? What should they do for their own self-interest? And the thing that's the most interesting, the most interesting moments are when characters do something that's not in their own self-interest. Uh, you know, there's this very mechanistic view of the world, which says that people do things for very straightforward motivations. Uh, and my observation in life is that that's not correct. I don't think people are motivated exclusively by, especially by, that's, that's always the, uh, the thing that people are motivated exclusively by money. I just don't think it's true. That may be economics 101, but maybe you need to go to economics 102 uh beyond that because i i think there's a lot there's a lot more to life i mean certainly money's important but uh so that that's morality money self-interest those are always things that we talk about what should the character do that was always the thing that we used to talk about the character i remember talking about a lot in that regard was was skylar white uh because there was a real challenge in keeping skylar uh 
in Breaking Bad because a lot of us would say, well, she should, she's got to just leave him. She's got to turn him into the police. Uh, and, and it would, took, us, took us many difficult weeks and months to try to figure out why, why she wouldn't do that. Why, why, what, what will she do, in fact, instead? And with Kim, you know, it's always the, it was always the question is this, you know, what's, why is she doing what she's doing? And what we found was that Kim Wexler, ironically enough, is driven by her own sense of justice. So even when she's doing something terrible, there is uh, at least a veneer of doing the right thing. Uh, anyway, that's, that's, mm. that's, uh, that's, that's, those are all, those are all things that I don't know. I don't even, now I can't remember the question. The, que- <laughs> the question is about <laughs> morality, but, but it's interesting because you also don't want the audience to feel the author's hand on the character's shoulder. So you yep. want to, you want to get Jimmy into a position where he's making that choice in the courtroom because that's a man deciding to do for the first time in a long time the right thing. Slipping Jimmy is finding his feet for the first time in a long time. I like the way you put it. I think he's, I think that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, you can't just put up a card on the wall and say, okay, this is when this happens. And this is when that happens. You have to let, you have to be honest about what the characters are capable of and where they are emotionally and psychically. Uh, And that, I think that's part of what makes, makes the show work or not work is if you if you're not if you're focused more on what what does this character do next uh and why then then i want to get to this this or that i think you probably heard me say that before (laughs) (laughs) well peter that is our time peter a great time indeed Uh, i absolutely enjoyed it thanks so much indeed thank thank you very much Okay, so that was Peter Gould, and uh, now we have some listener questions. This very, very flimsy excuse for a Better Call Saul <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, but we got some good questions, folks. We got some good questions. Uh, the first one, uh, these are all on Twitter, all people who slid into my DMs. The first one comes from at Cantonaz Ghost, and it's very, very simple. Marry, fuck, kill. Jimmy, Gene, or Saul? What, what would you do? How? Wh- wh- which... Which bracket would you put each one of those guys into? <laughs> Boyd is thinking about this far yeah, too long. Yeah. Oh. Like he's giving this genuine um, thought. I mean, fuck Jimmy, I think. <laughs> That's the first one that comes to mind. That what? seems harsh. Uh, I think you'd fuck well, Saul, because Saul's all like, he's really? all pizzazz and stuff, but he's not, he's not what a good long-term relationship is made out of. So I think, you know, he'd be good no. for a quick, uh, a quick bit of rough and tumble, and then you'd move on. A quick shifty, yeah. A quick knee trembler around the back of Asda. That's what you want with. That's what you want with Saul. You'd, you'd. I'd marry Jimmy, because Jimmy is your dependable marrying type. And and as much as this this pains me, I would have to kill Gene. Yeah, I think that's fair. I was thinking Jimmy would be the more sensitive lover. I think maybe. (laughs) Yeah, he'd be more attentive. I think less narcissistic. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, maybe we find out why he's called Slipping Jimmy. <laughs> oh, come on! Uh, although the things Gene can do with a Cinnabon uh, <laughs> smear you in cinnamon cream. Uh, no. Oh dear. Start as you mean to go on. We go. We we've we've started highbrow. We've started highbrow, folks. Always. Nah, the questions do get a little bit more highbrow. Um, some of them very highbrow. Some of them, quite frankly, I doubt our ability to answer. But <laughs> <laughs> the brow is so high, we cannot reach it. It's Robert Morley-esque. The brow is off the forehead. Yeah. Uh, all right. Here's a question from at Sean Gilbody. 
Uh, are there any characters from Better Call Saul that you think could have had their own Better Call Saul type series? And he also goes on to say any chat about Chuck would be great as well, because I think he gets a bit lost in the fray, considering how important he was in the early seasons. I have a, I have a Chuck confession. Oh, go on. I didn't like Chuck. And I don't mean I didn't like him. I, I found him, and there's no disrespect to, to Michael McKean, but I found him just irritating all the way through. And because the first season is quite Chuck-centric, I think that's one of the things that put me off it initially. Like, I didn't enjoy the Jimmy-Chuck stuff. I can't quite pin down what it was, but it didn't work for me. So actually, I was quite pleased when he, frankly, burned alive. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's some disrespect to uh, <laughs> Michael McKean. Yeah, to be fair. Who was great. Who was yeah. great. Who was he great. He was great. He is unimpeachably great. Yeah. Um, and brilliant casting. Absolutely yeah. fantastic casting. I mean, I'm not, he, he, is a, he is not a, he's, he's a problematic character. He's not a, you know, yeah, he can be extremely uh, difficult, uh, et cetera. But I still love watching Michael McKean portraying that role for, mm. for, for three seasons. Yeah, but it's easy to, it is easy to forget because... Post Chuck McGill, the, the show carries gets better and better and better as it goes on. I think probably um, it's easy to forget just how fantastic Michael McKean was, despite everything that James says <laughs> in that role. Because he he goes out at the end of season three, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's where he goes, yeah. and then from from that on, from from then on, it really becomes the the Jimmy and Kim show in a way that it wasn't because of the focus on on Chuck. And then of course Lalo comes into it as well, and he gives it this extra kind of kick. That means that you know it really, really begins to accelerate, and obviously all the, all the Gus Fring stuff is really beginning to accelerate also. And I, I think there's a tendency that you know to actually, I think he's right. I think Sean Gilbody's right. There is a tendency to forget about Chuck, but he's mm. absolutely imperative and so crucial to to Jimmy's arc and to and the way Jimmy the way Jimmy forms. But I'm a bit with James in that I wasn't a great big fan of the character either. Brilliantly written, brilliantly performed, yeah. all that sort of stuff. But, and you weren't meant to like him. No. You were meant to side with Jimmy against him. He became very much the antagonist of the show. I don't think that's what they intended for him to become. Uh, but as you know, a lot of the stuff with the show was them thinking fast, Golden Gilligan thinking fast on their feet. Um, you know, but with, with Chuck, I just felt that he was just a bit too sanctimonious, mm-hmm. really, to work as a character. And the you know, show jumped up several notches when he, when he died. So I think burn more people alive is the <laughs> lesson I should take from this. Yeah, I think that's fair. Love Nigel. Now, this is interesting because at Love Nigel is not just any Nigel. He is Nigel Williams, the Jazz FM breakfast DJ. Wow. uh, Whose studio we would have been recording this in, but for last minute shenanigans, which means (laughs) now recording it um, over Squadcast. And anyway, Nigel Williams says, uh, do you think the security guard really ate all of those Cinnabons? And what would your alternative ending be? I mean, just the the security guard having some kind of resuscitation after having a, some sort of cinnabon induced cardiac arrest. Perhaps that would have had a, an element of pathos to it that I maybe could have gone on board with. Uh, <laughs> did he eat all this? I would love to know if the actor, how many of those cinnabons the actor got through. How many takes did it take to get through the cinnabons? This, this is stuff that we don't hear about. Um, but I would not change one frame of that final episode. Not one frame. Interesting. Interesting, Boyd. I think the uh, the character certainly at all the cinnabon all the cinnabons yeah for sure. Um, 100%. The actor, yeah, the actor Jim O'Hare, I don't think did. No, boy, do you have an alternative ending? What, what, what would you have changed if anything? 
I think I'm with Jay. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, who am I? Who are we? To, yeah, who are to, we? Who are we um, to say that they should have changed? No, I think the ending was perfect. I think the ending was absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it it's one of the perfection. great. It's one of the. I mean, both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul mm-hmm. talk about sticking the landing, I mean, they are two of the greatest series finales in his in TV history. I think. Yeah, so, there's a boldness to this one. I think yeah. that even I'm not saying I'm not going to say it's better than the better than the Breaking Bad finale, though it may be. But there is a boldness to this stylistically, and the fact that it's like ninety percent in black and white, tonally yeah. the way it's just dripping in pathos. It's so, you know, low key and just emotional, and it hits you in all the right places, and it has such a pervading sadness, but almost like, especially when you get to the end of it, there's a sense of peace like he's he's come he's he's found peace he's found a measure of redemption even if it's only internal to himself and it's just a beautiful it's a perfect ending because you don't want him to get away with it but you don't want him to be punished Mm. either you're really torn and the fact that he's at peace with where he finishes kind of makes you feel like you can walk away from the show um it's wonderful it's a wonderful and that final shot when he got like the pillar comes along and he just gets sort of wiped out of frame by the pillar And it's completely Beautiful. plausible as well. It, it kind of works on every level because it works for the central relationship between mm. the two of them. You know, how Kim, how they resolve him and Kim is, yeah. is it could not be bettered either. Really. I just, it just, it's so nuanced that, yeah, they really, really sorted that out perfectly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think the, uh, it's been such a, it's such an unconventional final season. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I know we talked about that with, with Peter Gould. Um, you know, it goes left and you think it's going to go right. It does everything that a final season shouldn't do, <laughs> pretty yeah. much. You know, it kills major characters way earlier than you think it's, it's going to kill them. It kills characters you think are completely and utterly safe. I don't think anyone expected Howard Hamlin to be to be killed in this <laughs> yeah. show, but there he goes, you know, you know, to the head, one to the head. You know, Lalo's going to die at some point. You, you, you think Nacho's going to die, but not Howard. Uh, but, you know, but they, they dispatched him. And then, of course, the, the genius of the, the hard cut from Jimmy to Saul when Kim leaves at the end of episode nine, then you have yeah. a, pretty much a four episode run with Gene. It's just, <laughs> you shouldn't do this. Yeah, it's, it's everything you're not supposed to do to keep audiences engaged, but that's what these two shows are. They break all sorts of rules in terms of pacing, in terms of plotting, in terms of character. They do stuff that should not work and require and ask so much of their audience, but they pull it off and they suck you in I mean, it's incredible. It's just incredible. And the the bit where, when you go back and watch that episode, which he talks about in the finale, where he's pulled out of the RV and he's knelt in front of the open grave and like, and he's blabbling away. And he mentions Lalo and he mentions, you know... Nacho, he mentions Lalo, he mentions Lalo and Nacho. Ignacio, Ignacio. Yeah, that's it. So they, then they spin those characters, those brilliant characters from the show are spun out of a throwaway piece of fucking dialogue in a show years ago. That is insane genius. Insane genius. It is. It really is. I love it so much. And, you know, as, as I've said, probably repeatedly and ad nauseum, I watch the Breaking Bad finale at least once a year because I think it's just mm. a perfect piece of TV. I don't know that I will go back to Better Call Saul as often as I go to Breaking Bad because mm. Breaking Bad, you know, it pushes all those, those buttons. It's a much more conventional finale in, in yeah. that way, but it's just enormously enjoyable to watch Walter White kill a bunch of Nazis. <laughs> it's just, that's, <laughs> that's great. But maybe I will. Maybe I'll go back and I'll, I'll get some back, sort of I went back and watched, kicks. watched the courtroom scene, the, his speech in the courtroom scene. Is, yeah. That is, honestly, so that's one of the great scenes. So, uh, and that you don't does, see it coming. No. You don't see it coming. Yeah. 
and of course all all the cameos as well that you didn't see coming. Did anyone expect Michael McKean to show up again as as everyone's no. beloved beloved Chuck? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everyone's yeah. beloved Chuck, uh, and obviously Walter as well in his underwear, as we yeah. all know him so well. Uh, Massive asshole that he is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's glorious. That that Marie, courtroom speech Marie. is perfect. Yeah, Marie as well. In fact, the sequence, the kind of a proffer session where he's talking, it's not even a proffer session at the time, is it? It's the deposition where he's talking to the lawyers and he brings Marie in. And he's basically does them, he does that massive flex. If I can get his widow to buy it just a bit, you bet your ass I can get a jury to believe it. Yeah. And just, and just like the DA's face when he's a bit like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> Magnificent. <laughs> So good, so good. Uh, right, yeah, I wouldn't change the thing either. I mean, I guess we'll we'll get onto it in a second. I mean, I guess alternative endings to the show depends on whether you think you're happy with the ending for Jimmy, and I guess a sense of the show's morality. I mean, because mm. these are morality tales, ultimately. Yeah, you know, would there have been would it have been fun to watch Jimmy somehow get away with it and maybe go off and become Saul somewhere else and yeah maybe but also with a sense I'm going to be maybe a series of diminishing returns yeah, would have kicked in the morality calls for him to not be able to get away with it completely yeah. that's but also, yeah, doesn't it he's built his entire life on reinventing himself and slipping skins like he's, he's like a snake he sheds skins and becomes a new one and by the end when we see him when he goes out to see Kim in the prison he's completely found a niche for himself in this jail like he's 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 fine. Like he's mm. doing okay. I don't even think he's that unhappy. Like he's found a way to exist to reinvent himself. And that moment in the prison van where they're all like, "Better call Saul," you know, you, and this little smile on his face. You can like it may not be the life he would have chosen for himself, but there is a life for him there. Yeah, he's with his people. He is. <laughs> yeah, he's with his people. <laughs> Uh, Jason underscore Blackshaw asks a couple of cheeky questions. One is, why do you think Better Call Saul was overlooked when it came to the Emmys? I mean, not just overlooked, but it hasn't won a yeah. single Emmy across the six seasons. It's got one more shot, one mm. more shot because of the way this season was split into two. Yeah. Uh, how Ray Seahorn in particular didn't win one is just outright silly. Yep. Uh, and do we think the Breaking Bad ending or Better Call Saul, Saul ending was better? think that's an impossible one that's to really answer. i prefer one. the yeah. breaking bad one for all the reasons you said chris because it's more conventional it's more exciting the better call saw one is bolder and it's it's a more impressive piece of television to me so i don't know if that even answers the question it does it does they're both right <laughs> yes yeah. they're both equally yeah. good but the the emmys thing i mean that's just this is just ridiculous i know there's it a is. lot of great tv a lot of which i don't watch let's be honest but <laughs> i know there's a lot of great tv in rotation at the moment you know, and it's hard to beat. You know, to, to do anything that beats this the succession of White Lotus juggernauts. Um, but it just feels to me that it's daft that this show, this incredibly impeccably crafted, beautifully written, brilliantly directed, wonderfully acted show, hasn't had a single win. Like Bob Odenkirk, Ray Seahorn, mm. Michael Mando. Michael Mando's last speech as Nacho oh, alone is is Emmy worthy. If great. you ask me. Well, Bob Odenkirk was beaten in in the SAG Awards last night as we were recording this, wasn't he, by Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman yes, won for, for Ozark. Now, here's an interesting question because Ozark, it's, it, I think Ozark is, is, they have similar, you know, it's a similar kind of world, right? I, I don't know if you've seen much of Ozark to Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, but it's in that general territory, you know, of yeah. of drug dealing and um, thriller and action and yet and yet big, deep kind of thoughts as well. 
and the morality, all of that is, is in Ozark. And I think Ozark is an easier watch, I think, than Better Call Saul. Yeah. Right. And I think I think that the, the the negligence, the the lack of attention it's received awards wise in general is down to because it's quite right that beginning, that first season is not the most sprightly and um do you know what I mean? It's an event filled yeah. thing, right? It's slow as fuck. It's slow as fuck. Okay, that's the bottom <laughs> line. Whereas something like Ozark is very, very it's very pacey, it's very it's much more user friendly. So I just think right from the beginning the kind of people who vote for these awards didn't have the patience to stay with Better Call Saul, really. And that's the problem. And, even, you know, it ended up being this extraordinary masterpiece. But I just think they never really bothered gauging with it enough. That's the problem with, you know, mm. the, the bottom line, bad awards decisions are made when the people who vote for them don't actually watch the thing fully and gauge with it sure. fully. I think that's what's happened with Better Call Saul. That can be the only explanation for me. Yes, yeah, interesting. I, I thought there might be a, a case of, you know, Return of the King-itis where... There's a sense that as this show is finishing its run, they might give it some awards as a kind of "Hey, well done! You you stuck the landing on on this thing, and you're not just breaking you know bringing this home, but you're bringing Breaking Bad home as well." So here, have some Emmys. You've you've done well, but I don't think it's going to go that way. I think I think I think Ray Seahorn and Bob Odenkirk they're all they're all just going to finish empty-handed. It's just a it's a cavalcade of near misses. Yeah. It's a sad. It's sad, and a great injustice. A great injustice indeed. They need a good lawyer, if you ask me. Uh, at, <laughs> yeah. at Liam H. Dempsey, uh, who is one of those lovable chaps from the Spotlight podcast. Oh, yeah, Liam. Hi, Liam. Hi, Liam. Uh, this is a long question, but, but go with me here. Uh, depending on how you feel about these things, it could be said Walter White's treated to the easy way out in comparison with Jimmy's life in prison. Walt does die, but he's saved from a potentially long and grueling death from cancer or life in prison. He dies in his own terms and seems happy enough with how he goes out. Jimmy, on the other hand, chooses the harder sentence for his crimes, despite the fact that he, in many ways he never becomes quite as morally bankrupt as Walt. He never directly murders anyone, for instance. Do you think that Gilligan and Gould potentially crafted the tougher ending as a corrective to the male anti-hero narrative, told you they were highbrow these questions, huh. that was so prevalent in TV for so long, deliberately denying Saul the chance to go out in a blaze of glory, or get away with it scot-free? So this is the morality question we were alluding to earlier on. Wow, there's a lot to think about that. Um, I think I know where, yeah, what he's getting at. Um, I think they feel like very different series generally in terms of that male antihero question because Walter White is such a classic example of that. And um, whereas I think what makes Better Call Saul for me in the end maybe slightly more satisfying is the, is the Kim element of it, that she's such a great character in her own right and you know when she drives that when she drives that plot in the in the in the last season which ends up in tragedy right and and that she drives that and she's has a great time with it she's having the time of her life you know concocting this elaborate plot i just think it makes it, it gives it a slightly different tone to all of those because yeah what he's, what he's referring to is all of those classic shows like sopranos with all of these big anti-hero male characters Mm. Even though Better Call Saul is literally about the the development of this character and his two three different um, identities, etc., it feels like less of a less of a thing, a, a celebration of that kind of antihero in the end. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm think I'm, I, I don't know if this any makes any sense, but I this is, I feel like yeah, that's what he's getting at that that yeah. it's got a different quality to it, and in the end, 
to me, that makes it slightly... I mean, I love Breaking Bad, don't get me wrong, but this trajectory of these characters makes this slightly more interesting to me, slightly more satisfying. I think we can all agree that Taylor Swift is right, and it is exhausting, <laughs> always rooting for the anti-hero. Uh, but they're very... You know, they're different types of anti-hero. Like, so, so Walter White is a character. He's a good family man who turns to full darkness and by the end he's just mm. a monster and i think jimmy is ever a monster i think he is from the beginning to the end always he's a he's a morally flexible but very loyal man so he like yeah. his his morals are up for high but he is loyal to the people he loves and i think although he grows as a character and he has an arc i don't think the essence of who he is fundamentally changes i think he takes responsibility for who he is at the end certainly but i don't think he goes through a massive transformation whereas walter white's is a proper almost like trans you know it's a, it's, a, it's a progressive jekyll and hyde type thing that he goes through um so i guess mm. they you know that they are quite distinct well it's interesting isn't it you know i don't know if we talked about this on the last one we did but you know the fact that christmas carol has been cited as an example for or or as an inspiration for this for this final episode really and essentially, he's visited by the three ghosts of Christmas, <laughs> of Christmas past. I guess he's visited by Mike, he's visited by Chuck, and he's visited by Walter White. And in the end, you know, you you have this Scrooge-like conversion where he could have gone full soul. And for and and I'd love to get your take on this. You know, whether he is going full soul, whether his intention is absolutely to go full soul, and that's why he's so cold and callous and brutal towards Marie. And whether he, you know, whether he walks into that courtroom planning to, you know, cash in on this incredible deal that he has, or do you think that, for example, that he turns on a sixpence whenever he sees Kim? Because I think it's it's Kim that that kind of that's a very very late breaking development mm. for him. Because I don't know what do, what do you think? He engineers her presence there, and I think he wants her there. Though I'm not sure he knows what he's going to do, as you say, until he sees her. He wants her yeah. there. Yeah, but whether he's getting her there to showboat, or whether he's getting her there to, but it, it, then it becomes like a you know, a, 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 you know, it becomes a sacrament, doesn't? It? it becomes an act of confession. He like, you know, he throws away his life, his deal, everything to let her see him take responsibility mm. for what he's done. But that becomes the moment. He brings it there because he loves her, because he's still absolutely yeah. enthralled to her. Uh, yeah. uh, but I think in general, he, I think the difference between him and Walter White is he can't see, he thinks he can get his way with anything and with anyone. And as a grifter, as a kind of born ad man mm. and, and huckster, he can pull off any of these cons and he can manipulate people. But he doesn't, I think he doesn't, genuinely doesn't see the consequences. No. That's the thing. Whereas Walter White not only sees the consequences, he doesn't give a shit. In well, the end, far, it's, it's farsight for him. He plans, yeah, whereas yeah. Jimmy just responds to things. Yeah. Walter White has a grand plan, exactly. Jimmy never, I don't think Jimmy ever has a, he has no. grand, amazing, <laughs> the Cinnabon plot is like extraordinary, <laughs> yeah. right? But it's almost like he's just doing it for the fun of it. And yeah. He, the consequences, he just doesn't see the consequences. And, and that's why in the end, he's not evil. Is he? he doesn't go, it's not a story of good to evil. No. It's a story of good to kind of absolute ridiculous doofus. <laughs> yeah, it um, is. It is that. And yet, you know, smart in all kinds of other ways. And a man who's deeply in love with, with a fantastic woman. Mm. Mm. I, I spoke about this a little bit with Peter Gould, and I also interviewed Vince Gilligan for the, for the magazine. I may put that interview up as well. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, 
we talked a little bit about morality and about, you know, did they feel pressure? Did they feel a, a sort of moral imperative, if you will, uh, you know, to show people that crime doesn't pay? There is a, you know, a sense of, you know, obviously crime and punishment that runs all the way through this. I feel that this, the answer was yes. I feel that they, they did feel like they couldn't show no consequences. No. For Jimmy's behavior in particular, I bet I can imagine in that writer's room, you know, like, well, how do we give it, how do we make sure the consequences are at the right level, just at the right, you know, not too. And, and I think what they came up with is just perfect because, as we said, he is in prison, he doesn't get away with it. Um, but he is, he's having a pretty good time considering he gets to see Kim again, you know, all of that. So it's like, yeah, it's very, it's in great, con and you know, as. Liam was it who asked the question said right at the beginning of the question Walter White does get killed I mean you know, he's just he does die that's a very different that's a much bigger consequence than being sent to prison and having a pretty good time but it's the line you walk with all of these shows and if you have an anti-heroic centric mm. show the ending is so difficult because you need it to be satisfying but you need it to feel right within that kind of moral structure so take something like the shield which is one of the great all-time endings the fact that they managed to you never stop loving that character, but they find the perfect way to end it while he says trying not to spoil the shield. While 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 doing there are there are consequences of what I'm saying. There are consequences to his actions. You look mm. at the Sopranos, divisive as that ending is, divisive as what David Chase has since said about it, like it does what you want it to do. There are consequences. The wire, again, Marlo Stanfield, who is obviously the kind of becomes the central antagonist towards the end of the wire, the consequence of him is incredibly sophisticated, incredibly interesting. It's much more interesting than killing that character would have been. And I think it's doing that just right. And in both of these, I think they do it wonderfully. What they do with Walter White, what they do with Jimmy here, I think they find ways of putting a perfect capstone on this experience they don't get away with it they don't walk away but it's not as simple as oh they just died you know or they, yeah. you know it's not they're not looking for easy answers even in the world even in this series though there are also other characters how they get their comeuppance um it's, it's so brilliantly done like I, I i love gus fring's you know that scene where gus fring chats up the barman in that you know that yeah. play the white the wine dude and you think like well yeah he could have had this nice life you know if you hadn't have got, become a fucking you know front for a huge narcotics distributor and etc., you saw a glimpse of a life that could have been. I thought that was so powerful and clever for that character. So they're yeah. brilliant. They are absolutely brilliant in weighing up the consequences of these amoral people. Mm. And these guys, and we've talked about this quite a lot, is the fact that there is an amount of, they give so much leeway to the audience in this. And the way The Sopranos does as well, The Wire does especially, they they expect a lot of the audience. They don't spoon feed you. They they need you to kind of meet them halfway. It's lean forward television. It doesn't give you easy answers. And it's not even an easy watch a lot of the time. It's hard work, better call all this sometimes, to get through. But it's so rewarding for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's very easy for shows to play it safe and not not do that, not go for really sophisticated storytelling that will alienate, let's be honest, a significant demographic. You know, you look at Breaking Bad, look at Medical Soul, it's not like their viewing figures were like off the fucking charts, and there's a good reason for that. It isn't mm. for everyone. It is quite difficult. Uh, but I, I celebrate the fact that these things get made. It's interesting. So obviously, Mike appears in the final episode, but other than that, the second build, Jonathan Banks, exits stage left along with pretty much everyone else after, after the end of, of episode nine. I mean, even Kim's not in it for like two episodes after that. Uh, and it becomes the, the Gene show. Do you think, I want to ask you real quick, this isn't a listener question, but this is me. 
do you think that if you could level any criticism at this pretty much perfect show for me, that it maybe didn't quite do justice for Mike or by Mike? Do you think Mike quite impacted the way that he did in Breaking Bad? Or do you think it was, you know, that as they went along, Gould and his writing team realized that the, the meat of the story was in Jimmy and Kim? And obviously they had to mm. address the Gus and Mike of it all. But the Mike's emotional story just kind of fell by the wayside a little bit as it went on. Like Carrie Condon, for example, this just you know appeared less and less and less and less. Yeah. You know, his granddaughter wasn't really a thing. It just felt to me like they maybe not lost interest, but found it hard to bring Mike's story home or give it the weight that it that it, that it perhaps needed. I have to say, I didn't feel that watching it. But now you come to say it. Now you come to ask the question, maybe. Yeah. But I didn't feel... I mean, you're right. I think you're... It's funny. It's because the whole Better Call Saul follows twin tracks of this, you know, the kind of Saul narrative and the gangstery, druggy crime side of it. And I think you're right that the creators ended up... That that became less of less interest. That was more Breaking Bad style than... And that's what makes Better Call Saul so different. And in the end, Mike is definitely attached to that that other half of the show. But I, I don't know how would he have. But I didn't feel it didn't feel particularly unsatisfying at the time. Was it? But it just felt to me like Mike's emotional apex came when he kills Werner. Yeah, and that that's the moment where you know that, oh. you know that Mike you know hardens himself in a way he becomes inured to it a little bit. Yeah, and then after that is you know a lot of Mike's storyline is basically you know just trying to set him up with Gus a little bit and pitting him against Lalo and you have these two incredibly smart guys but perhaps because Jonathan Banks is getting on a little bit he wasn't quite as physical as he was in Breaking Bad he didn't I don't really think he had any amazing standout action sequences like he did in, in Breaking Bad towards the end all that stuff was given to Lalo who was such a force mm. and you know Tony, Tony Dalton is incredible in this so yeah I'm, I'm not saying that they they dropped the ball with Mike at all I don't think they did but I think I think along the way that they you know as we know, a lot of this show was accidental. They they thought that so you know Jimmy was going to be solved by the end of season one. They rolled with the punches an awful lot, and I think they found that Mike wasn't as important to Jimmy as they initially thought he was going to be. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I also think you have that kind of difficult break when you do essentially cut ties with the well, it's not the present, isn't it? It's the kind of the middle past when you cut ties with that and go full Gene. You leave everything behind, don't you? Like it feels like that, and that's that's one of the most difficult parts of this final season because you're so invested in that timeline with Lalo and everyone, and then it just stops, and we, and then suddenly it's the Gene Show, and it took me. And I, we talked about this on pilot. It felt like that the finale came at that point that that was the end of the show, and then this almost felt like an extended epilogue. It turned out that that wasn't the case, and this had a lot more to bring to it. But for a while there, for a couple of episodes, the first two of those Gene ones, I was a bit like, "What is this show? What is happening?" Like, I was really <laughs> thrown by. I was like, "So the show's now finished, and I'm now watching some random epilogue, which is just sort of like spinning out for the next few episodes." And much as I was enjoying it, I also felt a little bit shortchanged at that point, and it took a while for me to realise that actually this is important because it's pulling all the threads back together and it's tying them up. All right, we don't have a lot of time left. Um, my daughter keeps interrupting, so <laughs> we may have even less. Uh, here's a couple of really, really quick last questions. At Everything Blog One says, given the series ends relatively open-endedly from Kim's perspective, do you have any headcanon or theories about what her future might hold 
after this show, beyond visiting Jimmy in prison? Will she visit Jimmy in prison? That's a big question. I don't think she will. I almost feel like that was the end for those characters. I don't Finger think Finger guns and done. Because I think, because I think she's going back to where she was before. I think she's, you know, she's got her job. I think she's going to volunteer at that legal aid center. You know, if she doesn't, where do we leave it with the legal thing? Is she going to get sued? By no, no, she's not. No. Like so, she's on. She's she's on safe ground there. So I feel like she has a measure of happiness and purpose, and she's found happiness. Do you know what I mean? It's a smaller, different type of happiness, but she's found something. Uh, and I think you know, dabbling her toe in the legal water would do it. But I'm not sure she goes back to see him again. I think maybe that's the end of their story. Interesting. Yeah, I think that is the implication. I think that when she goes to see him, that's like one final time because she needs that closure. You know, I think she gets closure. They both get closure in that scene. So I think I think that is the end of their story. Yeah, but I do think yeah, I think she carries on having a as decent and modest a life as she can. Almost the consequences of her actions, I guess, are you know she ends up. There was that horrendous um, bloke wasn't there her new boyfriend who was oh, so God. boring the worst um, yeah it was like well she her, her punishment is to be end up in a really quite boring life as opposed to the extravagant criminality that she was partly involved with um yeah so i think i think she it, it, it's a quite dull life for her when i interviewed ray seahorn i said you know 15 years time jimmy gets time off for good behavior <laughs> the you know the gate of the prison rolls back is Kim waiting for him? And is that a show you'd want to make? <laughs> and she, <laughs> she said yes in both counts. So I expect I expect Gould and Gilligan to start making that show in 15 years from now. But, oh, yeah. Uh, now you mentioned yeah. it, that would be brilliant. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Maybe that could be the sitcom that they thought this show was going to be. And then oh, yeah. that would be Breaking Saul brackets out. <laughs> mm. <laughs> then they have to recruit Jesse Pinkman and whoever's left. <laughs> yeah. They get Walter Jr. to uh, to do some sort of heist. I don't know. Um, Richard Norris, 75, along similar lines. During the final prison scene, the cigarette is colour, whilst the rest of the yeah. shot is black and white. I assume that's meant to show Kim has brought a tiny bit of colour back into Jimmy's life and justifies all the post-Breaking Bad timeline being in black and white. Also, it looks cool. Yeah, <laughs> it looks cool. To be honest, yeah. it looks cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a film noir, that scene. That's a shot like a yeah, proper... It's lovely. Well, yeah. it's, and you've got the slats of like shadow mm. and light coming in through the window. It's shot very specifically. It's lovely. Where they're both backs against the wall, both facing the same direction, yeah. passing the cigarette back and forth. It adds it's to great. the romance. That's what it does. Mm. It adds, doesn't it? It adds to the romance of the two of them. You know, like, yeah, they're, they're in a cool... It's like a cool ending to their, to their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that they would they would go uh, full Spielberg and full Schindler's at one point yeah. whenever he was whenever he's doing his big address at the end that his jacket would be red like full red yeah, yeah because the because uh, the uh, the promos for the season were were Gene yeah. slipping on Saul's red jacket and I thought that maybe was what's going to happen but but it didn't and I'm glad that it, they did <laughs> yeah yeah having him in a red jacket would have been too Schindler's list I don't too, think I could have dealt much. with that <laughs> too much. like no 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 <laughs> what are you doing. <laughs> Uh, Rumblefish. <laughs> Rumblefish had um, colour fish, didn't it? In the, in it the, did, yes. In the black and it white. did. But of course, yeah. you know, there was colour as well, you know, right back in the very first um, episode, unless I'm completely wrong about this, because I have gone I have gone back and revisited the first episode. And like Howard's really interesting in that episode, given that we know how he ends mm. up. Um, but you know, if you go back and watch the first episode when Jimmy Jean is watching old Better Call Saul videos. They're reflected in his glasses in yeah. color. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, everything about his old life, the fatality of his old life is in color. And everything about Nebraska, Omaha, <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska is, is stark black and white. 
almost like an Alexander Payne movie. Uh, <laughs> yes. Hanson T.O.B. Did opinions, did your opinions change about the series overall? And at what moment? For me, the beginning was a bit wooden, but in the end, it mm. had me. Jimbo, as a convert, mm. you've already yeah, spoken to this. Season, but- I, I, I mean, I, I watched the first season as it went out and then didn't come back to it for like five years. I just found it very hard to get on with. I didn't enjoy it. And even the second season, I think I struggled a little bit more. I think it might have been either in, I can't remember the exact timeline, but it was either in season two or by season three, I was hooked. Obviously, COVID helped having a temperature of whatever I had, maybe ease that along. But yeah, I, I like I said, because it, it was the Chuck period, all of that, I just, nothing was really grabbing me. Uh, it took a while for me to get to it. I mean, Gus's appearance is obviously a big one, uh, but I think I was, I was in the tank for it before then. I love the idea that, I don't know if you guys know this, I'm sure you do, but uh, that if you, uh, the first letter, the initial of each episode from season two spells out Fring's back. Oh, does it? Yeah. <laughs> and I assume that was deliberate. And it was not deliberate. Just an incredibly weird it twist was, of fate. It was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> it's an anagram incredible. as well. It's an, yeah. it's an anagram, but it's an acrostic anagram. I did anagram. not know that. That's yeah. very clever. Yeah. Because they did wow. the same with season two of Breaking Bad with the uh, the the, plane. the flight flight down over Albuquerque or something. Yeah, like that. that's and all. And how they all start with like bits of the bear in the pool yeah. and things like that, and you can't work out what it is. That's that's incredibly good because I remember season one of Breaking Bad has a lot of stuff. It's actually quite action filled. There's a lot that goes on in season one of Breaking Bad, but it still hadn't grabbed me. And it was only about halfway through season two of that as well that I got properly hooked on it. Season one, I tell you what, I, season one, um, the episode um, where we see um, Mike's backstory um, is brilliant. Yes. And it, and 5-0. Yeah. 5 uh, that's it. Yeah. And um, that's when it won me over. Because I, I thought the first few episodes were a bit draggy, definitely. But that's such a fantastic one-off hour of television. But that's what I mean. Like, from Jonathan Banks' point of view, say you're Jonathan Banks, right? Yeah. I'm sure he's not going to complain whatsoever about being in this show. Yeah, but you know, you're you're told by by Golden Gilligan, come on board. We we need you. We can't do the show without you. Don't worry, we've got you. We're going to give yeah. you meaty stuff to do. And then they stop, kind of giving him meaty stuff to do in this yeah. final season. Like he has all the stuff with Nacho, but Nacho is yeah. the driver of that plot. He has all the yeah, stuff the, with Lalo. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. The penultimate season is his. His is, that's where he really sings, isn't it? Like yeah. The, the, the episodes in the desert, they are fantastic, yeah. He, yeah. Gets, he gets his big, big moments in those, in those episodes, yeah. You're right, the final season is... I mean, he, is, you're, he, is, he does look much older than he did when he was supposed to be younger, doesn't he, in, <laughs> in Breaking Bad, so that is an issue. It's, yeah, yeah, I love this show, because at the end you have 60-year-old Bob Odenkirk pretending to be, yeah. what, 40s? <laughs> yeah. Late 40s? You have 70-something Jonathan Banks pretending to be 50s? I yeah. don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work, but no. you know, you go with it, because you're such good, there's such good will. My opinion didn't change about the series, going back to the question. Um, I loved this from, from the off, and I think it was about two seasons in when I was you know, cautiously raised my head above the parapet and going, guys, I think this is as good as Breaking Bad. And I remember Nick in particular in the office would just go, you fucking idiot. (laughs) How can you even possibly say that? But it is, and it's such a different show. Um, But yeah, for me, it's, it's every bit as well executed as, as Breaking Bad was. I love them both. And I love, I've loved going back since Better Call Saul and watching some of the best kind of Saul-centric episodes of Breaking Bad. Mm, uh, yeah. And there's some amazing, my God, that show when it was firing all cylinders. Oh, 
Kiss a chef. I would I would 100% go back and rewatch Breaking Bad although I haven't yet. I don't believe I'll I mean I I'd rewatch certain episodes of Better Call Saul but I would never rewatch the whole thing again. I don't think I've got that kind of fortitude. Uh Cerulean Milieu <laughs> brilliant name. Does it bother you all that Kim's apartment is anachronistically too nice? The little rectangular <laughs> backsplash glass tiles were not a thing in the mid noughties. <laughs> That's but, a brilliant question. That is a brilliant question. Because it's right. You're right. Absolutely right. It's very photogenic, that, that place, isn't it? That, um, but, it is, but, but yeah, she's but a lawyer. She she's, can yeah, it, right? she's a woman of style and, yeah. and panache. So I think it fits. However, generally, when people point out, you know, I mean, going back to like Fred, when people point out how inappropriately lavish people's living arrangements are in tv shows i never care i just don't give a shit i'd like i'd much rather see lavish fantastic interesting yeah. interiors than the plausible place where they actually probably would live in reality so it's not an issue for me <laughs> I mean, what i will say is that my knowledge of what albuquerque apartments were like in the mid noughties is not great and <laughs> that i would imagine that the production staff on this show meticulously researched um, so I'm going to say that Probably. they got it right. But you know, on the other hand, it might be too nice. I'll miss that juicer. I know that oh, much. Yeah. Huh. yeah. And that brand new fridge and carpet <laughs> that they all got after Howard's brains were spread over the ground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the ground. Yeah. Anyway, um, last question. Lee's underscore 01. Do you think Jimmy made the right decision at the end? While I get the emotional impact, I'm frustrated that he didn't take the deal. Yeah, he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> I mean, of course he didn't make the right decision. It's like, so you got seven years or 84 years. What do you think you'd like to do in jail? No, he's a moron. <laughs> no, but he's happier. Deal, he's happier. Take he's the happier. deal, man. He's happier. Boy, ice cream every Fridays. Ice cream Don't every care. Fridays. Blue Don't Bell, care. mint choc chip. No, Come on. This is the whole point. He's, he went for the happier... The, the thing that's going to make him happy in his deepest thoughts is going to be... It would have been the ice cream. He would have been... <laughs> Yeah, he would have been tormented by the ice cream. If he had taken that deal, he mm. would have become Saul Goodman. Right. And he exactly. doesn't want to yes. do that. Exactly. And that is the point, isn't it? He tells yeah. the judge, my name is McGill, yeah. because That's at that James point, Morgan he rolls it McGill. back and he yeah. becomes Jimmy again. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. There you go. I think we pretty much exhausted uh, all the listener questions. <laughs> if we didn't get around to your listener question, it's because my daughter showed up halfway through uh, the, the discussion of it, and we probably had to cut it. So apologies if not. Uh, but that is it, I think, for our Better Call Saul celebration uh, with a little bit of Breaking Bad thrown in for good measure, and of course a Peter Gould interview as well. Uh, all that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my two co-pilots of such a lethal cunning, James Morgan Dyer. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this and you want more TV spoiler oh, specials, God. do subscribe to Pilot Plus for one ninety nine a month at EmpireOnline.com. It's pathological at this point. It is pathological. <laughs> we did The Last of Us. It was brilliant. There are three Last of Us spoiler specials on there. But if you want to hear discussion of TV shows that people actually do watch, then Whoa. our Mandalorian spoiler oh, specials are back. They're weekly, and they're oh. only for people who subscribe to the Empire spoiler specials. Two ninety nine a month. Supporting cast. <laughs> Empire. FM. Unbelievable. Boy, do you have anything that you want to plug? Unbelievable. This should, uh, this week on Pilot TV, uh, we're talking. <laughs> uh, I don't know. No. Just listen to everything. <laughs> listen to all the podcasts. <laughs> I've been dying for a pee for about the last hour. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm. Okay. Uh, anyways, goodbye from Boyd Hilton, aka Ermintrout. Goodbye. 
goodbye, Boyd. Uh, and it is goodbye for me. I'm off to prepare to do a spoiler special for Pooch Mooch, which is a show that's <laughs> yeah. all the rage in our house these days. But also, uh, <laughs> but also, I'm going to exhort Peter Gould to make better marry Jimmy, better fuck Saul, and better kill Gene. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.